Hello there, you. Welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. Guess who I spoke to? It was Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's pretty amazing. Uh, he was promoting his book, Letters from an Astrophysicist, but he was more than that, um, being a focused and dedicated educator. And I, afterwards, I've done his podcast, Star Time, Star Chat, Star Talk, and that was good as well. I enjoyed talking to him. The main thrust of it, as you might imagine, was me continually going, Yeah, but come on, there must be a God. Yeah, come on, but there's spirits and ghosts. Yeah, come on, there's miracles. It was actually my ongoing argument that it's hard to apply the tools of science to realms that may be beyond sensual or sensory, rather, experience. It's pretty good. And how can science claim to be objective as it exists within a capitalist consumer culture that has certain agendas and objectives? Anyway, I made it better in the conversation with him than I did in that intro just then. So you'll hear it, because unless you think, oh no, I'm not enjoying this intro, fuck that guy. Hello everyone at Luminary. I hope you're all enjoying this and you're all happy. We're very happy to be on your platform. Now here's some personal promo from me. Have a look at my YouTube channel. There's really good things on there. I do a 25-minute show called The Not Too Late Show, which I'll probably do a bit more if people watch it. I do loads of little spiritual videos that you'll like. And I look at the comments on things. Or Look, I get comments passed on to me by someone. So, you know, if you're talking to me in a positive, loving, and innovative way, I'll probably see it. But if you're being mean, I'll probably be protected from that. That's just the way the world has to be these days. Have a look at my Instagram, at Russell Brand. You can question me on that. Sign up to my mailing list, russellbrand.com, and you'll be the first to be told about upcoming shows, and there are some upcoming shows. Some, One of them's at a really nice venue. And receive exclusive content not found on my social media or YouTube channel. Okay, if you want to get in touch with me on uh, social media, I'm at Rusty Rockets on Twitter, I'm at Russell Brand on Instagram. And what am I on TikTok if you're a young person? I'm at Russell Brand Official. <coughs> That's right. I've gone on to TikTok and LinkedIn, Russell Brand. That's right. I'm available across a m multitude of platforms now. Um, you remember last week I said to you, who's got some questions? Here are some questions. Hi, Russell. Sorry about the delay. Sorry about the delay. This is interesting. I'm in a This is from Gary Bennett. Sorry about the delay getting back to you with regards to the topics of the new podcast. I was thinking really hard on what to say. Oh. I'm a married man, 12 years, with two beautiful daughters. Oh, I find it hard to be a husband, dad, etc., etc. Yeah. We'd love to hear you interview someone who knows about this stuff or can add a new perspective on the whole marriage thing. So what's that going to be? Someone that's... To, who's an expert on coupling or relationships? Or you know, it's not going to be a religious person, is it? Who's it going to be? A relationship expert. Who? Emma Kenny. Yeah, she's brilliant. We could talk to Emma Kenny, couldn't we? We'll get someone then on what parenting and family life and keeping that shit together. So yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with being in a, the con in, living life in a family can be very very challenging. And uh, when am I coming to Ireland again? I'm not sure, Gary Bennett. Dearest Russell and growing team. Oh yeah, because of Bear and Jenny and Charlie and Annabelle and a legion of wonderful volunteers. Anna, Damia. Tony, they're the people that respond to the emails because if you've got an email you want to send me, like these people did, you can send it to help at the words at help at russellbrand.com. No, help at russellbrand.com. Help at russellbrand.com. If you send me this thing there and you need help, you'll get you'll be in the loop, especially if you've got a drink, drug, mental health problem, that kind of stuff, you know. 
I, this is Olivia Stevenson. I just felt an overwhelming urge to email as Julia Julia Cameron popped into my head. Surely she would be an excellent guest on Underskin. She's up for it, actually, but she's in another country, America. So when I'm in America, we'll do it. Creativity, addiction, recovery, faith, turning to a higher power, abundance, prosperity, and another female voice, which can never be a bad thing. I hope you're, you're satisfied with the number of female voices. I think we're doing quite well in making sure that things are balanced, 50-50, because how do we categorize everyone really surely beyond there are systems of categorization that go way beyond sex gender race religion you know what if it's like, i'd like diabetics you know like, um and another female voice but yeah I, i'd love julia cameron she's a brilliant person hope you're well and thanks for your brilliant and beautiful work thanks olivia warmest autumn wishes what a nice thing to be sent Hi, Russell and team, says Kelly Kay. I've recently found your podcast and have been devouring episodes as much as I can. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you break away from comparison. Oh, that's awful. Just don't, yeah. Well, look, I struggle with the trap of seeing others online, says Kelly Kay, comparing my apples to their oranges, saucy, and feeling jealous when it feels as though my resources are lacking or less than someone else's. Does that make sense? Of course it makes sense. That's what I do. What I try and do is firstly, not get too much into doing that at all. You know, like not, they call it compare and despair. Judging your own insides compared to other people's outsides. We don't know how other people feel. Because I'm lucky to be in recovery, I get to chat to people sometimes more deeply. And you meet people you think, oh, this person's so beautiful and talented, they'll have no problems. They have. Oh, this person's so hard and tough, they'll have no problems. They have. Everyone's vulnerable as hell. Everyone's defined by the basic conditions of life which are, let's face it, death. I'd love to hear what you and your next guest have to say. Right, okay, I'll bring that up. Com comparison MV for Kelly Kay. We'll insert that into our next interview with whoever it is we interview. We don't even know yet, do we? Actually, we fly by the seat of our pants. Hiya, mate, says Rob. I love the new videos. I met you in New oh, York. I met you in New York on your live rebirth tour. And have been following your work wholeheartedly. That's how people in York talk. Your recent Q&As are amazing. And I just wondered if you're going to do one on low mood. I'm this is how people from York talk. I myself suffer from... Oh, no, actually, it's talking quite serious things now. I myself suffer from PTSD. All right, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry, Rob. I'm sorry about that accent. From life events and tours in the army. Oh, God, Rob, you're a bloody hero. You're a Yorkshire hero. And I've been helped by an EMDR program that I'm in the middle of the moment. I did some EMDR yesterday. It's brilliant. You have to remember some traumatic event from your past. And then the old flicky light comes on. And you have to follow the flicky light from side to side while remembering your past. And what it does, apparently, is it helps you to reposition neurologically something from a place of unacknowledged or possibly even unconscious emotional trauma to a place where it's been, I don't know, processed. I'm not a neurologist, nor am I an EDMR therapist. But I found it very useful, Robin. I hope you find it useful as well. I keep the self-care, healthy diet, meditation, kickboxing and karate, and no drink or drug. God, you're doing great. But even in good company, I feel alone. Yeah, I feel that. And I use grounding techniques. Stay with the breath, Rob. But I can't shift feeling lost, hollow, and slipping down in force. And I can't shake the black dog. How would you advise someone who feels like this? Well, what I'd say, Rob, is something in you is yearning for purpose and connection. You're obviously a person who's down with service. 
I admire anybody that's been in the army or any of the uh, could you do you call it service industries? It shouldn't really be an industry, should it? Services, yeah. Anyone's been in the services, man, for the self-sacrifice, for the duty, the sense of honour, valour, community. I imagine that perhaps you, there is now a vacancy in your life, and I might suggest some volunteering. I think that you're a good communicator, mate, and I bet you can do, um, I bet you can help people. I bet you can help people, Rob. Look, Rob, I for one would like to apologise for the accent at the beginning of the email. You were a bit like that, wasn't it? Is that even right? I mean, that's York. Yes, it is. That's how they talk. What's wrong with you? Like Bradford. Yes, they do. You're Jeff Boycott. Look, I will not have that accent criticised. Certainly not by an Irish person who's got no right to judge the English accent because, for after all, what history has there been between England and Ireland? Thank you. You've got your eyebrows are too big. Pluck out 50% of them. Thank you for she raised her eyebrows at me. Thank you for all your work. It really helps and has helped me in numerous situations and pain. Rob, I'm sending you so much love, mate. You're absolutely fantastic. My suggestion. Find some 12-step fellowships around uh, PTSD and even around the abstinence. I certainly would be, you know, I use support groups myself and I love them. So uh, that's my thoughts. And maybe a little bit of volunteering because I think you've got a lot of love to give, Rob. That's my feelings, mate. All right, let's see if there's been any comments on our last episode with Gail Bradbook. You've commented. Gail Bradbook, of course, one of the founders of the Extinction Rebellion and a damn fine person. This someone's called Epson Jorgensen go and I feel like I've heard it from Espen Jorgensen before this is good on target we're moving up a level in collective consciousness and right now it's extremely painful to be an empath at least it is for me and the more says this empath and the more conscious people talk about this shift the better thank you nice maybe our Lord Christ brought a level of consciousness to earth that had never been seen before Maybe it is always this way with the prophets. New ways of thinking, perhaps new frequencies, maybe on a deep down essential level, a level that would satisfy an astrophysicist like Neil deGrasse Tyson or a biochemist like Gail Bradbrook. You know, looking at the, what's, what is it, a vibe? What is charisma? I'm not expecting you to know, Jen, you've not got any. But for me, <laughs> Freya Shamanka. Really fascinating talk with Gal Bradbrook. Thanks. I went and looked up about spiral dynamics, which I'd never heard of before. I totally agree. This movement is evidence of the shift of consciousness humanity has experienced post-2012, and I'm very excited by it. This is just the beginning. Yeah, I agree with you, Freya. Joanna Long. I could learn a lot from that lady. Do believe in love, but too often and too readily fall into cynicism. Well, this is the curse of the romantic protecting ourselves with cynicism I often have the first reaction to reflect the same negative energy back rather than meet with the opposing force with more powerful love with more pa the more powerful force which is of course love Joanna I know I made some mistakes while reading your comment but I basically bloody well agree with you and we must show some faith in the great power of love and what better way to demonstrate that faith than by having astrophysicist and by all accounts from those who met the women who uh, run this podcast, an avuncular and wonderful man, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's probably got all sorts of letters after his name. He's got quite a lot of letters in his name. A lot of letters. Anyway, I found him to be quite wonderful. Thanks. 
trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Thank you, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for coming on Under the Skin. It's a thrill to meet you. Russell, thanks, thanks for the full three-name moniker, but just Neil will be Neil fine from going now forward. On. Yeah. Thank you yeah. very much mm-hmm. for permitting that. Um, I'm reading your new book, Letters from an Astrophysicist. It covers some biographical... Little, g- little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it opens with uh, a letter uh, that I wrote to NASA... And I didn't write it when I was a kid. I wrote it as a full-grown adult last year. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought that there was some tracking of my life versus that of NASA. We were born the same week on the calendar uh, in 1958, the first week of October. And uh, we just led very different lives in that first decade, in the 1960s in the United States. Um, I growing up in the Bronx, knowing from an early age that I enjoyed the universe and that maybe even the universe had chosen me, yet seeing NASA going from Mercury to Gemini to Apollo, I mean, the greatest epic adventure humans have ever undertaken. Yet in the 1960s, this is the the seat of the civil rights movement and leaders getting assassinated and march on Washington. And so... I was in between those two worlds, and I bet many other Americans were not. They just sort of saw NASA as just America, like the sole identity of America. But I saw different Americas in there over that time. How did you and how do you reconcile macro projects such as space exploration with the minutiae minutiae and tribal conflicts of civilized people? Yeah, I, I, I hesitate to put the phrase tribal conflict in the same sentence with civilized people. <laughs> to me, tribal conflict is, is evidence of the absence of civilization. Civilization is the ability to get along with people who are different from you. That's how I've always thought of it. Obviously, there's more to it than that, but I see that as a fundamental feature of civilization. And war has a way of destroying civilization or, or regressing it in some way. So, yeah, space is, you know, what What did Neil Armstrong say when he stepped on the moon? He said, I, uh, one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. The plaque on the moon says, we come in peace for all mankind. Didn't say we come in peace for America, right? So there was some lofty goals involved in that, in that um, journey. And so I think it has the power to bring out the best of us, at least uh, the best of us in terms of what we, think is, what we think is possible for our species. And yeah, you come back to Earth, you know, they, they saw Earth as this sort of orb floating in the vacuum darkness of space. Whereas if you're down here on Earth, and you can see it and taste it and smell it. And remember, we were in the middle of the Vietnam War at that time. So Earth looks very different when you're on its surface 
than it does when you're a quarter of a million miles away. And uh, one of the, uh, for me, one of the great takeaways of that era was that we went to the moon to explore the moon, but then we looked back and discovered Earth for the first time. In fact, you can trace every important legislation related to protecting Earth to that era. So from the, at least in the United States, but also globally, uh, 1970, the Environmental Protection Agency was formed. Why wasn't that formed in 1960 or 1950 or 1940 or 1980? It was formed in 1970 while we were going to the moon, after the first photo of Earthrise over the lunar landscape was published, was posted by NASA. So this, this awareness rose up. The first Earth Day was 1970. Um, leaded gas was banned. A DDT was banned. The Comprehensive Clean Water Act, the Comprehensive Clean Air Act, which previously had some stipulations earlier, but in this new era, where your concern about pollution isn't just the river behind that goes through your neighborhood or the lake that maybe some company had polluted. People, for the first time, were thinking globally. And as Carl Sagan famously noted, uh, air molecules don't carry passports. If you pollute the air here, it goes elsewhere, through the jet streams, through other, other forces of climactic churning that goes on in our atmosphere. So the notion that we're all in this together, I trace, based on my read of history, to the time we went to the moon. So, so to say, how do I, how do I, how do I reconcile uh, these lofty goals of going to the moon? I don't think we knew that that would be a consequence of it, but it may have been the greatest gift that the Apollo missions gave us. It seems that it's an idea that's been difficult to socially incorporate other than the raft of legislation that you've already cited. It still seems to me that we're primarily governed by territorial uh, incentives and and other motivations that could perhaps ultimately be re- resourced from basic primal drives. Greed on a national level, domination on an international level. So... This, if not absolute, then certainly global knowledge has not entirely infiltrated our consciousness and certainly hasn't entirely um, infiltrated our behavior. Yeah, I would say I agree it hasn't entirely done so, but it has done so at a level where there are things going on today that were unforeseeable long ago. Just the laws that were passed to protect the air that you breathe the catalytic converter and what role that played in reducing automobile emissions. I grew up in New York City. I thought every old office building was just black brick. And it turned out that was just soot (laughs) from from decades of automobile exhaust. And after the catalytic converter was developed and introduced, uh, people started slowly power washing the sides of their buildings. Oh, that's a beautiful brick color or, or an amber or a red brick. All of a sudden, Buildings took on these identities that I didn't even know were there. That's how, that's how, um, how blind I was to, to, uh, to, to, to how, how steeped. 
I did not know how steeped I was in auto exhaust, let me put it that way, having grown up in it. So, so today, um, there are trash cans, people put garbage in trash cans, people think about trash, they think about pollution. If a company is noted to be polluting something, everybody jumps all over them and they don't do business anymore. So there are major infiltrations that have happened, even if it's not total. It's at least partial, and that's a start. The, the narrative of progress is an alluring and attractive one, and one that is easy to track using technological and scientific markers in particular. We can witness, and you are one of the great experts in espousing and educating people on the nature of that progress cosmologically, but in other fields of science as well, you know, in your new book and in much of your other writing, and it seems impossible for you at least to divorce your um, admittedly cosmic knowledge from more uh, particular specific political and philosophical issues. But for, for me, this idea of progress outside of the world of science seems to be mythic as opposed to actual and literal. It seems that from my perspective that there is a degree of stagnation as indicated in the uh, part of the answer to the first question that there are still tribal conflicts, nationalistic ideas and quite um, retrograde and unsophisticated um, philosophies that I think govern not only individual behavior, but certainly that, but more impactfully the behavior of uh, corporations, of big business, and to a degree, government. Whilst I recognize that there is this romantic allure of the globe and the sort of um, utopianism of, of that admittedly scientific vision. Well, there's the book by Steven Pinker, The Better Angels of Our Nature, I think that's the precise title, where he studied tribal violence from the days where everyone lived in tribes, nomadically, to modern times where we now, most people live under state-controlled existence, countries, this sort of thing, with leaders, and uh, either elected or otherwise. And what he found was, no matter what period of time you look at, decades, centuries, millennia, the likelihood of you dying at the hands of another person has been dropping persistently from the beginning of civilization to modern times. And a part of it is, if you are one tribe fighting another, and you're just a tribe, let's say, say traditional tribe, you're in the woods and it's a tribe, you can ask, what percentage of the other tribe will you kill before they give up? Well, it's not 10%. It's like half or two-thirds. It's some number that is unthinkable in state-sanctioned warfare because the state has its own survival as a broader goal. So if you look at the numbers, take, for example, the Second World War, what countries lost the biggest percentage of their people? Okay, there's some bad numbers in there. I forgot the exact list. There's one country lost a third, but that, that was the worst of, among them. The United States lost, we lost a half a million servicemen. Uh, out of what was our population at the time, at least 150 million, possibly 200 million. So uh, how many did we lose in the Vietnam War? 50, 60,000, okay? That's still more than zero, but it is small compared with the total population of the country. 
So when you have states, what he found was that when you have state-sanctioned conflict, the tolerance for all-out warfare leading into the complete death of your tribe, it, that tolerance is near zero. And I ran some numbers. If you look at the total deaths from the Second World War, um, I, I ran the numbers. From 1939 to 1945, 1,000 people per hour were killed. I cannot now agree with you that today is the same. Today is safer than then. Okay? Today, if a truck drives through a crowded square, a terrorist act, killing 20 people, that is headlines worldwide for a week. Yes. And so you go back, like I said, to the Second World War, 1,000 people per hour. And even at 1,000 people per hour, the percent of total deaths in any given state was smaller compared with going back centuries and millennia before. So I can't entirely agree with you that we're behaving in the same way. Even, though, even if the goals are different, I think we're a, little, we're a little better than we used to be. I think it's an interesting metric, in a sense, just to concentrate on death through violence, whilst I mm -hmm. take your point that that's a significant category. I would say that the augmentation of a centralized sovereign states already represents such oppression and annihilation of culture that death through conflict becomes secondary. Yeah, so I, not, at no time in what I just said does it reference the survival of culture, right? Yes. And what, or the value of life, or the beauty of life, or connections, even using a sort of a materialistic, rationalistic idea to like connection to the cosmos and appreciation of the beauty of astronomy. Yeah, I was just, it was pure de death rate that I was referencing there. So, <laughs> just the death leagues. Right, right. And so the, there's all the rest of that. There are, there are cultures that have been wiped out, and we lose everything about them. Their language, their art, their... So this is this is in the list of great tragedies of the conduct of our civilization over the centuries and even uh, I'd say even millennia. You go all the way back to sort of Alexander and and the like. Just the idea that let's just conquer because that's the thing to do. You know that's kind of weird when you think about it. Yes. Um, uh, I would say that the. Uh, if we go back to the 1960s, 1967, there was something called the Outer Space uh, uh, Treaty. The Treaty for Conduct in Outer Space. There's some long title, but it's just called the Outer Space Treaty in shorthand. And it saw, this by, by the UN, the UN, uh, it came out of the UN, and it was signed by all spacefaring nations and other nations as well. It was a document recognizing that Earth's surface is no longer the limits of where we will be. And it gave some guidance for what our conduct should be in space. Now, I'm going to give two sides of an argument, and I'm going to land basically agreeing with what you've just told me. Oh. All right? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> okay. So it shows such hope and such promise. It says there shall be no warfare in space and no weapons. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but, but uh, no weapons of destruction. And if one country is in trouble uh, or is in need of help, other countries in space will come to their aid. It is very kumbaya. You just want to <laughs> hold hands and say, space is going to be, that's where we're going to fix all of these Earth-based problems. So I so want to believe that. 
but then the cynical side of me, which seems like there's some of that in you too. <laughs> the cynical side of me says, if you can't behave in a way that does not lead to violence on Earth's surface, why should I believe that humans in space would act any differently at all? And in fact, if you can treat each other kindly in space, then why not do that on Earth? You wouldn't even need a space treaty. We're just doing the same stuff we're doing here on Earth in space. So, so this is why you have things, suggestions such as a space force. Okay, this came up recently in uh, and Trump, President Trump mentioned it. Just because it came out of Trump's mouth doesn't mean it's a crazy idea. Why would you want a space force? Uh, by the way, there's already a space force. It's just not called that. It's called the um, the Air Force has something called the U.S. Space Command. It's a command of the Air Force. It has a general and all the trappings, and they monitor the GPS satellites. That, that was a military project of the Air Force to help guide missiles. But then the public co-opted it so we can find Grandma's house using um, uh, Google Maps, right? <laughs> okay, so it became a huge commercially valuable thing beyond just the original military application. So when people think of... Uh, space war that's a uh, 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 space force that's got to be bad they're not thinking wait a minute we've been i don't want to say waging war but we've had war assets in space ever since the 1960s what do you think spy satellites are from the very beginning and so all a space force would do would be collect all of these under a common umbrella and it would and its goal would be to protect assets against bad players who might also be entering the space regime. That's what it would do. And if you look at GPS in particular, it's not just the value of the hardware that's up there orbiting, it's the value of the commerce that it enables. Yes. The entire business model of Uber is GPS satellites. So, so, um, so all I'm saying is a Space Force is a tacit recognition that there could be uh, bad players in the future as more people have access to space also within that anecdote is a, a sort of a, a, a beautiful and i feel oft repeated pattern of state-funded exploration leading to innovation and breakthrough that is then metabolized by private industry and sold back to the very people that paid for its yeah. evolution <laughs> in the first that's place true. that's actually true and this and i love the word metabolized as you use it you, very sir. creative Thank you, thank you. And these invisible ideas, these invisible, difficult to ascertain, somewhat abstract philosophies, I feel are, 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 as almost might I venture as powerful as some of the physical laws that govern our lives, even though they are confections, uh, ideas such as commerce and uh, profit and who has power, who controls or what resources. I, and I'm, I'm referring again to my original question, part of the perspective clearly afforded to you by the depth and breadth of your cosmological knowledge, it, it, from me as a, a, a humble outsider glancing from the periphery, it seems like, like a, how can that not um, inform a more globalised and what, what do I want to say, almost... You know, there's that quote, of course you will, because I know that Carl Sagan was a mentor of yours. Uh, like, I think in one of his conversations with someone, that, an astronaut, this astronaut came back and said, when you see the Earth from space, it makes you want to grab politicians oh, yes, yes. and go, you hit assholes. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, Apollo 14, Edgar Mitchell. 
<laughs> and uh, I have it on my phone. I can dig it. If you give me a second, I'll just dig oh, it. Oh, would you? Keep, you keep, keep talking. Keep, keep. Well, I find that very, uh, I found that very moving and powerful, that quote, because it's like that person in a physical and uh, material way has experienced transcendence, has yes. experienced this is what it is to have a global perspective. Yes. Suddenly yes. the world, you know, all history, Shakespeare, Vietnam, all these things have happened on that disc. And the, I love the sort of colloquial way in which Edgar Mitchell was able to render that powerful yeah, sentiment. It's, it's very here. idealistic as well. I'm just feeling now. Now, Neil, <laughs> this yeah, is all just filler. Yeah, yeah, vamp. <laughs> okay, here it is. You ready? Yes, sir. Okay. You develop, oh, so Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14, went to the moon and back. Okay, but when he was on the moon, he had this reflection, which he then told Time Magazine. You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter million miles out and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14. That's pretty beautiful and profound. It's, there it is. And nothing you can say because you didn't go to the moon. He went to the moon and he saw Earth and that's what he felt. Unless you agree with him. <laughs> Unless you're being got by the scruff of the neck, which is his clear intention to anyone who doesn't see the world his way from up there. It's, 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 uh, I think some people call it the overview effect. Uh, for me in my field, we generally reference it as a cosmic perspective that, that changes you. And in fact, there are, in this book, there are many letters where a cosmic perspective was my only kind of reply I could give them because they were looking for some deeper understanding of their place in the universe or some decision they might make or they're confronting death. Yes. And about, there's 101 letters in there, about 10% of them are from people of a religious tradition where later they learned some science that conflicted and then they became conflicted. So they write in about that. There are people who are still on a spiritual quest and they just wondered, does science have anything, anything to say about this? Because so many of these letters are so personal. I've had to conclude that most people have never even met a scientist in their lives, much less claim one as their friend. And the way these people are writing to me, it's as though I'm their friend. Whatever it is that I did on YouTube videos or in appearances and documentaries, people felt comfortable enough to write these letters. And it's, it's a huge responsibility because they're coming to me for guide, life guidance. And uh, I don't claim to be a counselor or a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but I do have perspectives that come as just from being a scientist. It's an outlook from being a scientist, but also that darn cosmic perspective that can really put you in a new and different place with regard to whatever it is you're thinking about whatever decisions you need to make. Yes, and it sort of as a paradigm, it's functioning almost identically to a spiritual perspective, would you say? I know, of course, that what you will contest is that it's evidence-based and it's well, as a result yeah, of... Well, yeah, you don't know. We haven't had that conversation yet. Um, but I would say uh, spirituality, I think, means different things to different people. So I don't want to generalize what it might mean. But I can say that if spirituality to you is 
the sense or the feeling that there's something else going on that you don't otherwise see or experience. That's an interesting state of mind to have. And science is still a moving frontier. Space is still a moving frontier. There's probably more to be discovered than we have yet discovered that awaits us. So I'm not going to say that there isn't something there that you may could be tapping into. Um, I, I prefer hard evidence. Why? Before I, I prefer it. Because <laughs> <laughs> evidence is a good thing. There's so many things you can end up doing with your you can end up doing with your life in the absence of evidence that you could end up dying from it. For example. Uh, if someone says, here, uh, rub these crystals and it'll cure your ailments, if your ailment is a particular kind of cancer for which we can actually cure you, you will likely die no matter how hard you rub the crystals together. That, that's an exaggeration, but it's the, it's an, it's the kind of case where, where evidence-based living can have a very important effect on your longevity. <laughs> Yes, yes. There's no question yeah. that in medicine and, and these areas of yeah. that, that cannot be contested. But I, I feel that rationalism and materialism bump up against certain limits. And, and if, it, if we are to have conversations based on evidence, then in a sense, we can track what materialism, commerce, capitalism lead to they are currently like you know this is i don't want to be like apocalyptic or anything new although i get the sense you can handle it <laughs> it, it, it seems that it leads to but your hands are coming out like this and you do <laughs> you do look a little bit like jesus right so so this combination is feeling a little apocalyptic to me but go on i'm flinging <laughs> the right. palms out to, to the extremes exactly. of the crucifix <laughs> even, even as i talk uh-huh. this is what what i feel like that Human beings have this relationship with the unknown and potentially unknowable, not least through our intimate relationship with experience and consciousness. Uh, well, whilst there's definitely a trackable progress in the, the fields of science and the, the, the benevolent miracles that have been bestowed upon us by the scientific method are you know, this is foundational in what we recognise as society and civilization. it seems to me that there's another aspect to human nature that's dealing with subtler forces that are difficult to know. And and again, as a man that's dedicated to science, I'm not anticipating that this is the conversation where you go, oh yeah, why don't we just believe in fairies and ghosts and that kind of stuff. But the same way that invisible, uh, invisible constructs and concepts such as the idea of the United Kingdom or the idea of America or the idea of class or to a degree gender and race can be used to control and separate, uh, I feel that... People need narratives and stories to help them access the kind of uh, uh, perspective that Edgar Mitchell is talking about, a passionate sense that there is something that unifies us. And I would never, with a religious person or a non-religious person, say, hey, I think that you should regard the sublime in this way. But it seems important to me, and I've had a comparable conversation with uh, Brian Cox, who I know that you're friendly with, Uh like, um, because... You know, you're both, it seems to me, very passionate men who love the cosmos, love the universe. And so much of your book is talking, it comes from a place of love and kindness and togetherness. Thanks for noticing that. Yeah, that's definitely there. Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, we've got more in common, those of us that believe that love and compassion should define our experience here on Earth and in the outer reaches of space, have more in common than those of us that are trying to pursue materialistic, individualistic, selfish goals, although I'm capable of being both of those people. I feel that where is the, upon what terrain, mentally, 
do we afford the possibility of negotiation with the unknown when there are still such great mysteries like the formation of consciousness? Every time I see an article saying, you know, new evidence about the configuration of consciousness on neurological pathways, it always leads to, we don't it's bloody know. It's the evidence know. that we know nothing about it, that people keep publishing books on consciousness, attempting to explain it. The more, if you just look at the progress of knowledge, when people are actively publishing on a topic, generally it means that it's not settled. That's why people keep publishing. the results on, aren't in that yet. They're, they're not in yet. That's correct. When the results are in and everyone can agree, then people stop publishing on it. So the fact that you can go to a bookstore or a library and see shelf upon shelf of people, people's books saying that they explain consciousness and those books continue to appear even to this day is it, just evidence of that. Uh, whereas if you go to the shelf of the books on gravity, there's like four books. <laughs> That's kind of it. You know, we, 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 get, we got to the moon, we got to Mars, we got the gravity thing. All right, we, we got that worked out. But let me get back to your point about the unknown. The, the, um, I, the unknown is, is one of the most powerful forces of inquiry to the scientist. We thrive in the unknown. We love the unknown. We like standing in the, within the perimeter of the circle that is known and staring out into an abyss and saying, wow, I don't understand what that is. Let me get back to work. So there's a difference between not knowing something because the circle hasn't expanded large enough to encompass it and declaring something is in principle unknowable. And the history of what it is to know stuff does not support the contention that there are things that are unknowable. That, Out go the, the arms again. <laughs> the, arms have gone up. the Jesus arms, just for those only listening. But even from things that you've, but even from things that I've heard you explain, one of the things that you said that I really loved is that you say when dealing with people that are, um, I suppose. Um, pedagogical or evangelical is there anything I could say to you that would change your mind and if the person says no then you don't bother yeah, you're kind of done with the conversation right here's something that I'd like mm -hmm. to say though and because like, I'm, I'm well up for learning always I hope it, that, that surely consciousness as we understand it and our experience as human beings limited as it is by our sensory instruments it is contained within certain parameters whilst we can amplify and magnify in all sorts of directions there is a sort of a basic limitation to our understanding and even from watching your program on the cosmos when you talked about multiverses and even from hearing you talking about neutrinos and how inconceivably low down the subparticular world goes in this scope the unknowable in terms of the human experience upon that which can be proved that that must be a vast vast territory because we can never know the multiverses would that be fair to say we can never know from a sort of a century perspective I'm the neutrino world that. i'm just not gonna say that because the moving frontier delivers all manner of new surprises to things that you thought were either fully known or partially known or unknowable in a previous time. Uh, take a look, this is a, a medium good example. Uh, in the day when sort of religious philosophies were, nice, were deeply embedded, and let's look at Europe for a moment, and someone 
bends over and writhes on the ground and frothes at the, froths at the mouth. It's really obvious what's going on there. The devil has infused the body of this person. Clearly. So we need an exorcism. So the priest comes, brings the holy water, ex exorcises the person, and then the symptoms fade away, and clearly the devil left the body. That was the explanation in the absence of the methods and tools of science. And now we know, of course, that's an, an epileptic fit, and it does run its course, giving the illusion that removing the devil by holy water and other enchantations and incantations by the priest is what actually solved the problem. So back then, that was something that they thought they understood, but in fact did not. Maybe there might still be people today who think that's what's necessary. But the medical profession tells us that this is an ailment that afflicts some human brains. Very unfortunate, rapid, uncontrolled firing of synapses. And so that's an example of something that um, may have been unknowable or even divine at a time that we solved and were onto other problems. There's no question that superstition thrives in ignorance and institutions yes. that crave power will uh, exploit that exploit that yes. that, that, that void. Um, but what I'm talking about is that even based on, like on what I've learned from watching your TV shows, that the scope, the sheer scope that it is put simply the capacity for human understanding must be finite so the capacity for knowledge infinite let me let me agree and disagree with you okay so uh first a lot of what you described our consciousness our personal experience what we feel in science i don't even care because the human senses are demonstrably ill-equipped mm to take measure of the totality of the physical universe. So what science has done, basically since the invention of the microscope and telescope, which happened within 10 years of each other, by the way, back in around the year 1600, then the race was on. I can now enhance your view with a telescope. I can improve your view downward with a microscope. Your senses had no access to those places in the universe until I came up with those instruments. And the run of science over the past 400 years has been all about developing instruments so that you can see beyond the five senses you are biologically endowed with. So when someone comes up to me and says, I think I have a sixth sense, uh, I have ESP, I say, fine, but in science we have 12 senses. I can measure things your body doesn't even know is going on in front of you right now. And so, so that, is, that is a power over ignorance that science has brought to us over all of these centuries. Now, let me now agree with you. It's, who is to say that humans, who by our own definition are the first intelligent species there ever was on Earth, who's to say we have just the right amount of intelligence to figure out the <laughs> entire universe? That's kind of egocentric. Yes. Think about, and I give this example often, I'll do it for you here on your show. You uh, take the closest genetic relative, so the chimpanzee. It's a trifling difference in DNA between us, 2%, somewhere around there. Well, if you're if you a human lover, you would say, what a difference that 2% makes. 
We have podcasts. We have the <laughs> Hubble telescope. We have philosophy. We have art. We have music. And the chimp does not. What can the chimp do? They can stack boxes and reach a banana. Our toddlers can do that. So that's a smart chimp. What our toddlers can do. So we're, 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 sitting, we're sitting pretty happy about ourselves, right? But now, imagine some other life form 2% beyond us in the same vector that we are 2% beyond the chimps. What would we look like to them? The smartest of us would accomplish what their toddlers can do. I, and I joke that we, they take Stephen Hawking, roll him forward at their, at their human study conferences and say, this human, Stephen Hawking, is slightly smarter than the rest because he can do astrophysics calculations in his head like little Timmy over here who just came home from preschool, alien Timmy. So our most, their simplest thoughts would transcend our most complex thoughts. To them, the universe might be just a trivial exercise that you learn all about in an afternoon. Yet we are struggling, requiring the most brilliant among us scattered over centuries with information shared that and incremented upon one rung of a ladder at a time trying to see over the hill. And we can't yet, whatever that hill is. We don't even know how tall the hill is, how tall the hill is. So I don't know if we're smart enough to figure out the universe, but we're still progressing and I'm happy with that. Yes, and our, like, um, the, the comparison between our experience of reality and our cultures and the cultures and experience, presumed experience of reality of a chimpanzee compared to this uh, as yet fantastic 2% advanced species. <laughs> um, it's, Before we know, we're already their pets. <laughs> we're in a terrarium. Yeah, yeah, yeah earth, it's an ter- earth terrarium. <laughs> um, it's sort of inconceivable how abstract and tangential their perspective of reality might be. And here I would like to say... Um, Completely inconceivable. Inconceivable. Just think of the following sentence. Uh, Russell, uh, when we're done here, uh, I, I get to leave tomorrow. I go back to New York and I get a plane um, and it leaves. And, uh, but, but next time you're in New York, call me on this number and we'll chat. There's nothing in that sentence that is even approachable by a chimpanzee. chimpanzee. Wait, how are you crossing that? What's an airplane? How did that work? What's a telephone? What's the a future. <laughs> like a relationship, <laughs> a conceptual relationship. You know, so on one line, there's the material, the, the traceable material empirical pathways which we can track and regard those particular narratives. But I want to mention this thing that's been bothering me ever since I see it on your TV show, that dude Bruno who precedes Galileo Giordano by a bit. Bruno, yes. So I love that bit of the show and it seemed to me that that fella went on some kind of vision quest yeah i love that vision quest that's what that was an entirely new perspective of reality which is now verifiably imagine the universe that the stars of the universe were like the sun and they each might have had planets unto themselves and so my favorite quote of his is that as he says to the religious orders of the day your universe is too small it's a god looking at only Earth when there could be an entire universe full of planets. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, like, what I feel like is that this, these can, prior to Galileo ver- verifying the, and uh, was it Copernicus, verifying Yeah, yeah this, Copernican, uh, verifying Copernicus for having the sun in the center of the known uh, solar system, yeah. 
he was able to conceptualize that idea without any sense sensory mechanical or, or verifiable access to data not only that he did it before the telescope so he was just invented. kind of Sorry, so in all fairness he did have data but just wasn't from telescopes it was, Where very was it from accurate measurements of of um Astronomical yeah, movement. Yeah. I mean, just watch what the planets are doing in the night sky. Okay, hang on a minute. And That's not going around the sun. Yeah, there, you can explain it with epicycles, or you can explain it with Earth in the middle, or you can explain it with the sun. In fact, there was a, pre a preface or an introduction to his great works called De Revolutionibus that was uh, rumors have it that he was forced to put it in with so that he wouldn't be branded a heretic. And in this in this introduction... Uh, he says, uh, this is probably not right, the sun in the middle of the known universe, but if it helps us to calculate, then this model should still be shared um, by others. So he did not fully commit, and, and we think he may have been coerced to saying that, but he did not fully commit to the sun-centered universe. Just says, treat it as a model if it helps the calculations come out. Please don't burn me. <laughs> Just that's between the lines. Right. right. So, um, so, by the way, he predates the telescope and the microscope. Yes. So, so when I gave you the birth date of science as it is unfolded, as it is conducted by enhancing our senses, that is post-Copernicus. Yes, sir. So, so you can't say... Oh, science never gets it right. How do I know you're going to change your mind? We used to think Earth was flat. Now we think it's round. We used to think the Earth was in the middle. of the That was before we had the methods and tools of science. Yes. Once you have the methods and tools, you can perform experiments that verify whether something is objectively true and then move on. These experiments are obviously vital, and that's not something I'm disputing. It just seems interesting to me that in the case just cited, someone envisages a, a reality. And also, isn't the history of your discipline uh, strewn with such examples of uh, almost divine intervention, sudden access to data and information that has previously been locked, sudden downloads, whether it's in like the relativity or gravity, you know, the, the great... Benchmarks. Sparks of, of brilliance. And what are these sparks of brilliance? And from where do they come? And I don't think we can immediately go, oh, there's a God and it's God. <laughs> you know? But it's interesting to me that there is a sort of a rich theological history, particularly I'm speaking of Vedic traditions that seem to be referring to cosmology and discoveries that have since been verified in a metaphorical and symbolic language, not equipped with sub-particular, with math or indeed. <laughs> okay, here's, here's my issue with... For take you mentioned Vedic traditions, um, I don't know that you could use Vedic traditions to design and build an airplane that doesn't fall out of the sky. So you can say that they got it first in whatever sort of metaphorical similarities. I don't have a problem with that, but it's not useful in the in the when it comes down in the end to putting it to work in the service of civilization. But Neil, don't you think that there's something rather reductive about con continually referring to direct material utility as the only positive outcome, particularly when a significant part of even this conversation is about abstract, conceptual, ideological territories that humankind seem to wrestle with. Fairness, equality, love. I don't have a problem with that. It's just that you 
commented that some of these Eastern philosophies mentioned Vedic astrology among yes, yes, them. Yes, 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 That that somehow knew something before we did about... And why the, do you have this very clear <clears throat> we and they? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, because they're different times and different places and different cultures. So, But it seems like it's science versus, say, theology or spiritual spirituality. No, I, I, I would just say that if you look at Eastern philosophies, not that I claim to be some world expert on this, but I've read a little, that the people who see what science has discovered in modern times, many go back to the Eastern philosophies and they say, see, they got that all along. Or do you see quantum physics was prefigured by this tract of writing? And I'll say, okay, but you didn't use that pre-tract of writing to invent the technology, the IT revolution, which is founded on our understanding of quantum physics. So, so, so maybe that's not what you should be citing as its value. Maybe you should oh, yeah. be citing its emotional, spiritual um, uh, value in how we treat one another. Sure. Exactly. I think it's merely a curiosity if there seem to be comparisons that could be made between like Brahman breathing universes into reality. Right, exactly. exactly. Sound- it's, 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 it's interesting metaphorical analogs. Yes. But like, and, and in a sense, Neil, this could be used to demark the sort of the territories for mechanistic science and moral theology and spiritualism. That one territory is about how do we treat each other and take care of each other, and it would be as ridiculous to use science to to try to prescribe morality, ethics, oneness, as it would be to use the Vedas to design uh, an, an aeroplane. <laughs> I, I would say that science can inform moral philosophy. If you have some sense of morality based on some principle, there could be things science can learn ab- about that principle that can help you make decisions when it's time to lay out a moral code, for example. So uh, I, I don't want to completely put a line in the sand between the progress of science and the progress of, 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 of the arc of moral uh, uh, progress. Yeah, because um, if it, uh, nor would I, because even the, the you know what's become a, a repeated emblem through our little chat, the Edgar Mitchell. That's a, for me. That's a spiritual idea. He's saying, why are you prioritizing ideas of territory, commerce, and gain uh, over our essential, integral, verifiable oneness? Right, and that image of Earth from space is as nature intends you to see it, without the color coded countries that are in your school classroom on the yes. school globe yes these imposed Th- there they are and and i remember as a kid why are these why are they all different colors i just remember thinking that not understanding it because when you're really young you don't understand the concept of a state of a state existence and of a yes i knew the 50 states of the united states but a governmental state what does that even mean like you said that's a very abstract concept i remembered the first time i walked slowly through the capitol in Washington, D.C. There are quotes all over, okay? None of these quotes is praising any human being. They're praising ideals. And I'm saying, wow, yeah. Oh, my God. And I felt so patriotic. (laughs) But then I realized, what is the United States? It's just an idea. It, this is not written on, in, a, in a tablet in the sky. This is just some people gathered around and said, this is us. 
then how do you protect that idea? Oh, you need a military <laughs> to say, this is us and that's not you. And so I feel you when you say these are these abstract ideas that we, that we, that pervade civilization that don't have any tangibility other than that we all agree to behave in this way. Yes. And that way you can demark who is in and who is out of group. Faith-based ideologies such as you know, the state is a de facto religion, uh, utilizing the philosophies and ideas, the structures that preceded it in the pre-secular. I, I wouldn't say faith-based, uh, not to be semantic. I would say that it's um, what faith and politics have in common is dogma. So that's what's really manifesting. Because faith would be, I think this is true even in the absence of evidence. Whereas uh, politics can, will come up with some like Nazism, where it's just, it's not based on whether they're gods or anything. It's just you're superior and everyone else isn't. Yes. And then here's a worldview and a philosophy, and there it is feeding itself. But my sense is that if enough people resigned from the belief that, e.g., the United Kingdom is a real thing, the United Kingdom ceases to be a real Correct. thing. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it requires this shoring up of who and what the idea is for it to work in any way that makes sense as a country, as a queen. Why, why does the parliament have power? Why is the queen so revered? All of this. No question about it. So an interesting question that you that you haven't put on the table, but I will because you just made me do so, is a cosmic perspective overrides all of that. Yes. And they kind of did that with the TV series Star Trek. It's the United Federation of Planets. There is no, there's no fighting on Earth anymore. We're all together. We're all humans. And I joke that if aliens came to Earth, what they might remark most about is what this same species speaks different languages they can't communicate with one another how many languages do they speak hundreds a thousand dialects what you need a certain piece of paper to cross this line <laughs> on this land mass and if you cross this other line they will harm you what are you i, I i'm i just trying to picture what an alien would say about us yes most of these uh, concepts are ridiculous for, to me until i consider uh, the interests of the powerful when i think well, what are the interests of the powerful and um, usually the philosophies and uh, the way that uh, terrain and topography is demarked is in accordance with my understanding of the interests of the powerful and my concern would be as a, as a, a great man of science do, uh, do you have concerns that the field of science, whilst its findings are um, transcendent and verifiable and transcendent of politics, that their funding, for example, and many of their objectives, say in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, weapon industry, are contained and ultimately controlled by primal motives that do belong in that 2% deficit chimpanzee land that we thought we'd <laughs> left behind. Ways of enforcing power, ways of demonstrating control. There's no question that what science gets funded is driven by geopolitical forces. There's no question about that. And geopolitical could mean economic, it could mean militaristic, it could be hegemonistic, any and all of the above. No question about it. But it does not affect what science finds to be objectively true. Yes. That answers 
to a higher power <laughs> than the funding source. That is nature serving as the ultimate judge, jury, and executioner of an idea. And it is possible, by the way, scientists are human just like anybody else, and we have bias like anybody right. else. We might be a little more aware of our own bias, but we have bias. So fortunately, the methods and tools of science have systems in place to ferret out that bias. Why is it? How does that work? You came out with a result, and I think, I think you're biased. I'm going to do your experiment to see if I get the same result. But I got a different result. Mm. That throws your result into question, and it throws in your integrity as a scientist into question. I get credit for showing that you're wrong. Yeah, in the more esoteric circles of academic science, perhaps, but not like if you're churning out some opioids <laughs> across America, oh. and I'm saying, hey, you shouldn't be selling Percocet and fentanyl. Here's a new study, because that's not in the interests of the pharmaceutical industry. So I would say that the ultimate ideology is a capitalist consumer ideology, and scientific pursuit, even though it's based on objectivity, has to exist within that framework. And as a result, there's a, an incremental but continual bias towards the results that do not challenge the interests of the powerful. And that challenges the fundamental objectivity of the entire discipline. No, not the objectivity. It challenges the... the um, there could be entire branches of science that go unresearched because they are not of interest to the state. Yeah. That and or that's that's sad. That's sad. So what we so occasionally you get people who are wealthy will fund their own research project. Or if you win a Nobel Prize, you get a million three, a million five dollars, and then you start your own project, and you're not beholden to the wishes of the state. Um, I or big business uh, or, or or the economic or political wishes. My book before this one was titled Accessory to War. Oh, yeah, that military one. The, yeah, exactly. The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. And it's a very real fact that in spite of the general liberal anti-war posture that I and my colleagues take, um, we're overwhelmingly liberal, progressive anti-war, there are common needs that overlap with the military. Uh. There are innovations in the military that we have exploited. There are innovations that we have uh, invented that they have exploited. And this overlap is a two-way street, and it's been going for centuries, even millennia. So it doesn't change the objectivity. It changes just the categories of things that get researched. That's all. And in a sense, how can we make any claim to objectivity when there is such evident bias in the direction of study? That no, I, I, it's not ultimate objectivity, it's objectivity. That's a different bias from bias in your actual research. Yes, yes. So I want to, I want to separate those two. I would agree. Definitely the state will fund what they want to see. Yes. If you now do the experiment, you can do it in an unbiased way. And if you don't get the results the state wants, that's too bad for the state. Yeah, but you ain't getting no funding for that <laughs> anyway. So that field of objectivity remains invisible forever. You know, like I'm a, a fan of the um, comedian Bill Hicks, who, uh, and uh, like a, I'm also very aware I was introduced to you somewhat through your appearances on Joe Rogan, who's mm -hmm. a friend of mine who mm -hmm. I, I think is absolutely fantastic. We all connect through Joe Rogan at he some point. He is the, yes, the, okay. the epicenter, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the heliocentric uh -huh. version yeah. of the podcast space. 
Um, that Bill Hicks... In particle physics, they would call it he's the center of mass. Oh, right. In the he's particle <laughs> universe, yes. No, I think he would enjoy that. Uh-huh. Um, like, uh, that Bill Hicks has a quote about, sort of, essentially about transcending our biases and um, earthly prejudices, and he says, you know, and we could explore space, both inner and outer, together in peace, as this sort of summit of this wonderful positivist diatribe. And I feel that With the removal of uh, capitalist, nationalist, consumerist uh, ideology, which I would say is one of the dangers I feel of a well, an evidence-based world is the uh, the the only things that can be proved are we live, then we die, uh, that we we require certain resources, and that this pathway neglects. A, an aspect of human existence which I feel has become um, barren, stagnated, and, and our lack of access to it, I think, is expediting our the, the destruction. What do you see at the, the center planet. of that? No, no. What, what is what are we missing most? Do you feel this? What you would, in your language, call a cosmic perspective. Okay. And but like but and I we need that because that it can reshape how you think about the world and every decision you make every day you live. So yeah, I agree. And, but and that's he, what. What do you think I'm trying to do? When I get the book, what are you doing? Trouble just, on the podcast? Am I failing that it's badly? Clock. I've got jet lag. I'm sat here going through this shit. You're blaming me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> meet, meet me outside. I'm going to sell this like men. I know you wrestle. Um, <laughs> So, I weigh you by more than 100 pounds. So, uh, yeah, uh, I don't recommend we go that route. Yeah. So, um, so it's a good thing Joe Rogan isn't here because he can kick both of our ass. Right, yeah, who needs that guy involved? <laughs> yeah, I'll keep it very, let's keep this academic, intellectual, and verbal. Um, but, yes, it seems to me, how do you feel if there is a general coalescence in terms of the objectives, from my perspective, achieved not through academic study or knowledge of the cosmos, but through an, an, an intuitive understanding of my own psychology, through my own suffering, through reading of various scriptures and psychology and psychiatry, the realm of philosophy that can never be underwritten in the material and mechanical way that your disciplines can, but have still led me to this place, and, and that to, to my earlier point about uh, the Rishi's saints and sages and your man Bruno discovering through means not fully identifiable that there is a a, a, a oneness a, a unity if we were if we're arriving at the same position does it does that to you Neil uh, mean that we can afford uh, space to both of these milieus so you're saying arriving at the same position I would say throughout history, there have been deep thinkers about the physical universe. Not all of them have gotten the right answer. Right answer defined by, we would later show by the methods and tools of empirical science that the idea was well-founded and, 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 and fertile for further research. So I'm not prepared to say that all the deep thinkers that had deep thoughts, that they all were equally as influential in the progress of our understanding of the natural world. And another point I would make, which I meant to make about uh, 20 minutes ago, was uh, Isaac Asimov famously noted that the scientist who makes a discovery is not likely to ever say, Eureka, contrary to the claims of of, um, uh, Archimedes or Archimedes. So, no, the, the, the signature of a discovery 
is not Eureka, it's, hmm, that's funny. <laughs> There's just, hmm, that's odd. That is the source of discovery. It's something didn't happen the way you expected it. So something is going on that you don't understand. Now you have to figure out what that is. Do you even know what question to ask in order to design the experiment to test for it? So I, I just want to say that I don't know that the scientist needs the, the shaman next to them while they go forward. I don't know that that's necessary. You might need them to think about people and places and things and relationships, but advancing our understanding of the natural universe when the scientist has access to senses that go beyond the five senses the shaman has or the six senses the shaman has, um, I'm good with the science here. Absolutely. But in a culture that incorporates the shamanic as well as the scientific... I like that word, shamanic. The funding... Did you just make up that word? I'm making all the shit <laughs> That's up, Neil. a good word. No, it's a I've good word. I'm not all morning. You. I'm complimenting you on the, a shamanic. Go. That... But a society that incorporates the shamanic and the scientific would very likely afford the scientist the territory, terrain, and funding to explore the outer reaches Possibly. of Possibly, and we have them in mind. The That's what the world. priests, the rabbis, the, 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 um, the imams. I would say they're neutered and operate within territories that are no longer potent except in sort of Almost everyone does. You say that as though that's unique to one kind of thinker relative to another everybody's within us within a culture within a system yes yes but I, I suppose that the shaman was just a temporary totem for the idea of hmm, uh, the divine and a cosmic perspective mm -hmm. achieved not necessarily through you know an Edgar Mitchell style bloody hell look at that but through a sense through a inner discovery in a world that I think perhaps by its nature and by the limitations of our tools and our senses may never be trackable, monitorable, measurable. You know, like I, when I chatted to Brian Cox... The, wait, wait, so monetizable, I think was the word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not yeah. giving you that word, monetable. <laughs> I'm uh, taking that back. Monitor, yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, when I chatted to Brian Cox, he said, like, if it can't be measured, then it isn't there. You know, and uh, like uh, maybe I misunderstood him, but like uh, it feels to me that that is uh, like uh, assuming a kind of, that we, you know, as you said earlier, that, that we are at the frontiers of what's possible as opposed to in a very particular animalistic space somewhere between these vast unknowable outer reaches, or even though speculatively. Yet to be known. Outer to reaches. Yet to be known. <laughs> and uh, the, again, the, in the sort of sub particular world, these bafflingly beyond microscopic phenomena that out, somehow we have been granted this unique position and I suppose what, what I'm saying is is that um, that if we uh, allow science to be uh, the sole f cultural force for determining the nature of our reality I'm not talking about wacky orthodox mad religion that's about telling people they're better and don't put that there at bedtime okay. not that kind of whack stuff I'm talking about uh, you know, what do you think you're gonna miss if that's the case if what's the what case? do you fear if religion if science leads the way as in our understanding of the universe. I think that it cannot be extricated from commercial interest. I think that if we're talking about evidence-based, look at the last century, it seems that it's... Okay, so here's something <clears throat> to know. Uh, every country has, every free country, has a funding threshold below which 
the free exploration of science goes unjudged. So in the United States, that funding level is at about a billion dollars a year. We can propose pure science projects, provided they come in at less than that price tag, and they don't later on get judged for whether they serve our military or economic values. The Hubble Space Telescope came in under that funding threshold in terms of annual outlay of monies. There's nothing about the Hubble Telescope that, other than some technologies that were borrowed from, from the military, the telescope itself and the motivation for making it had no economic or military or any other state-infused uh, point, any state-infused motivation. So you can do science. You're just not going to do the really expensive science because the state has the deepest pockets. That's all. So we didn't, make the, we didn't build the particle accelerator here. That was above the funding threshold. We were going to make the superconducting super collider. It, they already dug the hole in Texas in the 1980s under the Reagan administration. It's still the Cold War, allow me to remind you. All right, We already built all these other particle accelerators across the country. Brookhaven, um, uh, Lawrence Livermore, um, uh, uh, Berkeley Cyclotron. We have Fermi Labs. We had particle accelerators. Why? Physicists won the Second World War. The country said physicists are important. We need physicists. So they were kept employed the entire time. So what happens? This super collider, which no one is saying, but is given a buoyant force because we're in the middle of a Cold War. Nobody's saying that, though. They say, we're doing this because we're exploring science. What happens? What happens in 1989? The wall comes down. And what happens in 1991, two, and three? Peace breaks out in Europe. You know what else happened in 1993? We zeroed the budget of that particle accelerator, half built or half dug. And the center mass of particle physics crossed the pond and it landed in Switzerland. The Large Hadron Collider, they discovered the next amazing particle, the, the, the Higgs boson. The Higgs boson, they won the Nobel Prize. There it was. Yes, and isn't that a wonderful example of how physics, if it can be utilized for martial endeavor and territorial endeavor, will be funded? Fully and, funded, yes. And, then, and when it's no longer useful, it won't they just be. just zeroed it. Correct. And so I'm it's saying that like was... the a, invisible ideology that's behind science. See, that's, again, that's, not objective, not that's for the really expensive biased. project. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying that mm. was above the threshold. Below the threshold, you have things like the Hubble telescope. You have the Mars rovers. You have the mission to Pluto. All of those are below the radar of the state-required fulfillment of some point of philosophy. The longer we talk, Neil, the more that I feel like what, we're, uh, what I am passionate about is excellence, excellence and purity of intention. Mm -hmm. And if this exists in the field of science, then that is beautiful. It does and if, below a funding threshold, yes. And if it exists in the world of uh, philosophy, of ideology, but then that is beautiful. And I but feel philosophers that these... are not very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're <laughs> Armchair, you know, a, a notepad maybe. Maybe throw, some. Throw in a, 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 a laptop. Some LSD, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to push the boat out <laughs> take it to another dimension Neil thank you uh, I feel like we'll, we've been talking for uh, over an hour Russell thanks for, ha for having me on and, and I, I enjoyed hearing you try to put spirituality into <laughs> our lives because it's in the pure science side of it there's there are barriers there but for me I don't see barriers I want to 
uh, I'd like what it is to be human and being human means you feel at least as much as you know I feel awe I feel awe and I recognize that this is what you feel in your field of study and whether you're talking about the minutiae of domestic life and allowing your kid to break eggs which influenced my oh, own no, parenting ruined our carpet <laughs> uh, you know like uh, uh-huh. or the grand uh, yet unknown <laughs> reaches of the universe I find you a, a great thinker and educator so I value you and Thank I value you. our time together thanks for having me thank you Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Neil. Neil? Jen? It's Neil deGrasse Tyson. He said say Neil then at the time. He said say Neil. He said say Neil then. That was them. But this is now. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, professor and doctor who Jen seems to think is just her mate from the little village in Ireland that she grew up in. Remember to let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. You can tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin. You can also follow me now on TikTok. Follow me. And at Russell Brand Official. Or on LinkedIn, where I'm known as just Smokey Boy. <laughs> now I'll call Russell Brand on that. In the meantime, have a listen back to some previous episodes. Brian Cox was good, wasn't he? Who else is good? You don't know Jason Hickel. Who is Jason Hickel? Oh, he was lovely, Jason Hickel. Have a listen to him. Please sign up to my mailing list on russellbrand.com. If you at help, russellbrand.com, so you need help. Don't know if you, if you, if you just want to say hello, do it at hello. No, hello at Russell Brand. If you want help, help at Russell Brand. Every email will be read and responded to if it's valid. Not just things like, can you send me a photograph to my cousin? That's what a lot of people want, a photograph for their cousin. You can have if you want. And keep checking my YouTube channel daily for new videos and click subscribe and all that kind of stuff. You know how this media landscape works. Anyway, thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media. I love you more than you can ever possibly begin to understand because you are selfish and shallow and cruel. No, you're not. You're wonderful. It's a joke. I was looking at Jen then and I got distracted. I described her personality. Uh, All right, so I'll uh, see you next week or speak to you next week. I love you. Bye.